Creative Collisions with Second Home. A complicated year for journalism, an unforgiving piece of music, and a looming deadline. Inspiration can often come from the strangest of places. Welcome to Creative Collisions. I'm Rohan Silva, and today we'll be experiencing the joys of being an amateur through the work of the talented Mr. Alan Rusbridger. In 2010, Alan was the editor-in-chief of The Guardian. That year was filled with headlines of revolution, revelations and scandal. Yet, on top of all of this, Alan set himself an almost impossible task. To learn, in the space of a year, Chopin's Ballade No. 1. A piece that, in Alan's own words, It produces night sweats in proper pianists. I heard somebody who was not very good like me play it. And I thought, well, that must be playable if he can play it. Then all this crazy stuff started happening. It was the year of phone hacking and of WikiLeaks and stuff like that. And I realized these two narratives were becoming intermingled. Alan documented this journey in his book, Play It Again, An Amateur Against the Impossible. It was a story of how I did both these things and the piano playing stopped me from going completely mad as an editor. When I was a kid, uh, my mum couldn't afford for me to have piano lessons. And so I actually grew up sort of thinking that I might be brilliant at the piano, but I just never got the chance. Tragic to admit, I sort of thought maybe I was some kind of piano genius thwarted. And um, actually after reading Alan's book, I was really inspired to start playing the piano for the very first time. And it's been really, really depressing to realise that I'm actually just completely rubbish at the piano. There's no genius there whatsoever. But it's been great, and I've loved every bit of it. And I wouldn't have started playing the piano had it not been for Alan's book, and in fact for the conversation I had with Alan at Second Home. To sort of kick off, will you tell us sort of how it is that you decided to take on this challenge of playing Chopin's Ballad Number 1? Well, um, the whole story only works if you realize I'm a very, really bad pianist, <laughs> because a good pianist playing a piece of music would not make a very interesting book. So I'm like lots of people, I, I learned when I was little, gave up, because it's not very interesting playing scales when you're a teenager, and really didn't play for about 30 years. And so something forced me to try again in middle age, and took it quite seriously, and went on a piano camp with other sad pianists. Chopin's Ballade No. 1, to say it's difficult is a gross understatement. Beginning slowly, it builds to chaotic crescendos, tortuous melodies. It's hardly the ideal choice for an amateur. But this was the point. When he heard someone play at a piano camp, it wasn't so much the music that attracted Alan. It was the challenge. One of the themes in the book that is really inspiring and, and thought-provoking is uh, this question of sort of, is there time? You know, how much time do we have in our lives, in our days? 
And you end up sort of concluding that maybe there's more time than we think. Will you just tell us a little bit about how you yeah, well, arrived at that conclusion? There was, there was an Edwardian author called Arnold Bennett who wrote a book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And he said, you know, we all work for eight hours, we sleep for eight hours. So what do you do with the other eight hours? Which makes it a shocking question. You think, well, what, eight hours that I, I'm not working or sleeping? I think it's quite common for people to have learned a musical instrument or to want to learn a musical instrument. And usually their excuse is, I don't have time. There was no way I had time at the moment that this book took place. We were doing WikiLeaks, we were doing phone hacking. It was a crazy period. Uh, and I was working at least 12, 14 hours a day um, if I was lucky. So I, I had the perfect excuse not to do it, but there was something compelling about wanting to do this. In his book, Alan describes how we're all born with an innate urge to create, one that's usually fulfilled in childhood by things like music or even colouring in. But by our 20s, we've usually given up. However, that creative urge is still there, and it's only a matter of time, or maybe even a matter of making time, before it will force itself back into our lives. It's clear that playing the piano benefited Alan more than it just being a creative outlet, and that by carving out 20 minutes of his time each morning for practice, it would go on to benefit him right throughout the day. I certainly found that after a while, if I hadn't played the piano, then I would go to work feeling sort of more jangled, and, uh, and if I played the piano, it, it calmed me down and sort of set me up for the day. Mm. But I asked one neuroscientist if, if that was chemical, that I was releasing serotonins or dopamines or whatever they are, and he said, no, it's not really about that. It's just, it's that business of thinking about something completely different and doing something with your hands as opposed to your brain. But I felt that the piano playing was sort of essential to the sanity of, of anything. Yeah. And, and at one point in the book, you interview Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State under President Bush. And I had no idea she was such an accomplished pianist. And she says, you know, Chopin kept me sane in the White House. Um, How sane is how it? Sane. <laughs> yeah. There is a bit of a Philistine streak, I think, in British public life where there's an assumption that playing the piano, uh, doing other creative pursuits on the side shows you're a bit of a dilettante. You're not serious about what you do. Do you think that still exists? Did a bit. I mean, I was a bit worried about that in, in writing it, because, you know, I think if, you know, if an editor sloped off to the gym in the middle of the day, no, nobody would think twice about that. Mm. You know, that's, that's sort of given that you do that. So I thought people might think it was a bit lovey to be finding time to play the piano and to, to write about it. But, you know, why not? Why not? One of the other great themes in the book is about the role of the amateur in music and also journalism, because, of course, the book was written against the backdrop of WikiLeaks and the emergence of Twitter and so on. Alan, you, you describe in the book uh, the role that the amateur used to play in music, um, the of house music in the sort of 19th century, which has sort of slightly disappeared or has, has certainly changed. Would you just sort of sketch that out for us, you know, the, the role that you used to play and, and, you know, why you felt that and feel, I think, that is a very important thing? Well, I think um, it, it's, all, it's all a fault of recorded sound. So everybody used to have a piano in their house to, to get friends around it and play and sing. Mm. And then recorded sound happened, and that, that had two effects. One was that people expected to hear perfection. So if you go to the concert hall, you expect to hear a perfect performance. And so the, the professionals got better and better and better because they had to produce the perfect performance. And that had the effect of sort of denigrating amateurs. I mean, amateurs and professionals used to play together. There were, I mean, a 
150 years ago, there was no such thing as a professional pianist. Mm. Um, and then, you know, people listened to music rather than played it, and, and they got rid of their pianos. And one of the sort of ghostly things in writing this book was going around secondhand bookshops, which barely exist nowadays, but, but there, there's, there's still one behind Marylebone Station where they have secondhand music. And it's all been slung out of libraries. And you just have these scores and realize that, that people used to take these scores out and play together. So it was just, it was a sort of, that, that thing about, it, did, it didn't matter as an amateur whether you were any good or not. Amateur means you do something for the love of it. And as you imply, that tied into something that I felt was happening in journalism. To be an amateur is a complicated status. Whether it's photography, journalism or music, our increasingly technological world means that the line between amateur and professional is getting more and more blurred. And so with blogs and social media, the amateur journalist can easily take on the role of the professional. And we, the public, no longer have to wait on the professional journalist to find that information. I wondered how Alan felt about sharing his journalistic platform with the ever-increasing number of amateur voices. The trouble is the word social media is such a weak way of describing a profound revolutionary shift in society. Mm. And you can't just write it off and say they're all stupid. Uh, much of it is, some of it's horrible, but there's, there's incredible intelligence and, and cohesiveness and collaboration and networking going on there. And some of it's really fantastic. And so I was always anxious as a journalist who used to be on the stage to, to sort of cling on to that and say, what we do is so much better than anything out there. Um, I think I happen to think journalism is incredibly important, but I think you have to reassess what it is yeah. in the 21st century. However, the rubber really hit the road when Alan was writing Play It Again. Never before has there been such a vast cache of secret or confidential documents. This was the year of WikiLeaks. Market. You know, it's not a news organization. There, there aren't journalists working there. by a group of people who remain largely unknown to the public. Julian Assange is an enigmatic Here was an opportunity for Alan, as an editor, to say no and not publish this amateur release. But that wasn't his response. You know, there was Julian Assange. He was on the run. He had, at that point, the biggest leak of classified documents in history. And we said, well, why don't you bring them to us? We published them with him, which was unbelievably complex because he was in hiding. We were publishing across sort of three different time zones with multiple partners. Um, nevertheless, what we did together, the redacted version of these documents, I, you know, I will always defend. What he did, then did, which was to release all of them unredacted, I don't defend. But I can see his argument, which is about gatekeepers. You know, you set yourself up as gatekeepers. Mm. Why should you be the gatekeepers? Here are 300,000 documents. There are some you haven't even looked at, which are to do with, you know, India or Indonesia or, you know, I'm just going to throw them into the world and let people decide. And so you get into this, uh, a, a big, I think, discussion about who gets to own the information, who gets to filter it and who gets to... I mean, he, he would use the word censor. Especially as this is also the year in which The Guardian, along with The New York Times, but principally The Guardian, drives forward the revelations of phone hacking at uh, the News of the World 
other newspapers too, but principally the News of the World, really sort of shows the fallibility of editors. You know, the fact that editors or the gatekeepers can't always be trusted. So I suppose, you know, would you say that further supports the, uh, well, and clearly the, the it's, celebration it's of the It's problematic. Amateur. I mean, the, the News of the World, well, let's broaden it. The, the Murdoch organisation here was behaving in a way that if this was a car company or an oil company or a bank, there would have been utter, utter outrage at what had gone on. It, it was obvious that there had been a criminal conspiracy inside News International, that some of the directors knew about it, that silence money had been paid to get rid of it, and that nothing had then been done. And even when we published the first stories about it, the police had the shortest inquiry in history, about three hours, and came out and said, there's <coughs> nothing going on here. The parliament were intimidated. The regulator blamed the Guardian and not the News of the World. And there was something about the power of this particular company and its dominance in the media that meant that nobody wanted to take it on. And that, that was an uncomfortable feeling for us. It was very lonely. But again, it, it plays into this issue about, well, who, who says you can be, you're the gatekeeper? Mm. So a lot going on during this year. Phone hacking, WikiLeaks, running a newspaper, uh, you know, big change in the industry. There's something you... you uh, you say in the book, which is that uh, learning music is something like healing, something which takes time and can't be rushed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wonder, you know, what you think about, you know, these spaces for quiet and calm mm. in the digital age and, you know, how we might find them in our lives. Uh, completely vital. I mean, there's a cliche, but, it, but everything has speeded up so much. I mean, the, the horror when I realised that people are going to start reading news on their mobile phones. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, people who understood how apps were working much better than I did could come in and say, look, unless your app is updated every 10 minutes, people won't go to your app and then your app will be completely irrelevant. Then you won't have a business model. And so a news industry that was pretty fast and tense already just became horrendously speeded up. And, you know, we all live with that now on Twitter, which is, you know, the ultimate speed mechanism. So I think probably it's more important now there's a, there's a beautiful quote you mentioned by Carl Jung at the beginning of the book. You, you quote Jung as saying, A human being would certainly not grow to be 70 or 80 years old if this longevity had no meaning for the species to which he belongs. The afternoon of human life must also have a significance of its own and cannot merely be a pitiful appendage of life's morning. The significance of the morning undoubtedly lies in the development of the individual, our enrichment in the outer world, the propagation of our kind and the care of our children. This is the obvious purpose of nature. But, this is a key point, whoever carries over into the afternoon the law of the morning must pay for doing so with damage to his soul. How much as you were writing the book were you sort of looking ahead to no longer being editor of The Guardian and sort of finding purpose in, you know, life after daily deadlines and, you know, looking after the bottom line of a, of a big organisation and so on. How, how conscious was that at the time? I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I was thinking about post-editing. I did have a strong feeling that playing the piano was going to be an important part of my life, and I was regretful that I'd spent 20 or 30 years not playing. I think um, there, there are advantages in middle age. You know, when, when you're 15, as I say, you can't see the point of playing scales. Mm. Um, and when you're middle-aged, if you've taken on a thing like this, you have to play scales, um, and you can see the point of it, yeah. and you're probably a bit more patient. And also, you're playing great music, which 
when you're 15, you don't understand. When you're 45, you understand it better. When you're 55, maybe you understand it even better, some, right. some music. So it's one of the few activities in life where maybe you get a bit better as you grow older. Well, that's hope for all of us, yeah. You, you end the book on an incredibly upbeat uh, tone, describing some of the pieces that maybe, just maybe, you're now going to grapple with. Three Schubert sonatas, three final uh, Beethoven sonatas, the first two movements of uh, Schumann's Fantasy 17. There's a, there's a bit of a list. How are you getting on with that? <laughs> um, well, another, another change in my life. So I'm now running an Oxford college, and I had the amazing luck, the, the wonderful music professor there, Susan Wallenberg, who is a great Schubert scholar, and she and I sort of fell on each other. She was just, she has just retired, but um, she and I play now every week, and so I, I'm getting much more pleasure from playing, I mean, there are about four really great Schubert pieces for four, for four hands on one piano. I think often in life we tend to think of being an amateur is something bad. I mean, we long to be the best at what we do. But clearly for Alan, embracing the role of the amateur came easily. And he described in his book that one of the big benefits was that it opened up to him new friendships and collaborations without any fear of judgment. And I was curious what else he enjoyed about the amateur life. I think to be a good amateur, I mean, I, I, part of the book, I, I speak to Baron Boyum and Richard Good and Murray Pariah and people about playing this piece, Alfred Brendel, they've, they've all had a go at it. And I think if you're at that level, there are, you know, clearly, that's a, a wonderful thing to be. You know, being a so-so professional pianist, I think is pretty hellish. Right. And you're living on your nerves and, you know, a piece like this would really terrify you. I mean, it terrified Barenboim. But being an amateur and you can, you know, you can begin the evening by opening a bottle of wine, <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're going to make mistakes because that's not why you're playing and nobody cares. Mm. Listen, I've got about a hundred more questions, but I'd love to, I really would love to open it up. Um, thank you both. So fascinating. It's reminded me how much I love the book the first time around. I'm fascinated by that dilettante point that you raised about the fact that it was classical music, which automatically gets sneered at. Do you think there's a sort of badge of honour in public life that means that classical music in particular is not allowed to be embraced by people? I'm often struck if there's ever a classical music item on the Today programme, for example, the presenters sort of invariably make a point of how little they know about it. And related to that question, Alan, I agree with practically everything you say, but I'm stunned that you would say that the main fault uh, that people no longer play, amateurs no longer play, is all down to the recorded music industry, because surely education has a part to play in it. I wonder if you could make a point or how you feel about sort of the role of classical music, the marginalisation of the arts in general, but particularly music in our classrooms and in our general culture. Well, I, I think it is true that, that people sneer at classical music in a way that they wouldn't enter a football match. So, you mm. know, there was an occasion about four years ago when George Osborne went to hear the ring at the Royal Opera House with a, with a couple of, I think he was on his own. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, want, I wondered if there was a sort of cabinet outing, but I think he was just, in, and, yeah, and this yeah. was, you know, ridiculed that a Chancellor of the Exchequer would take mm. time out to go and see Ponzi Opera, you know. Had, mm. had, um, yeah. And I don't think, you know, if you'd gone to an Arsenal match or gone to the theatre, you know, we, nobody would have battered an, an eyelid. So I think there is, there is something about the, the image of classical music. I mean, I have to say, I think it's got itself to blame a bit. I, I think classical music went down a very odd path in the 1920s. 
uh, and for about 50 years was really hard to listen to. And the, 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 the sort of high priests of classical music elevated a, a form of classical music that actually most people didn't want to listen to. And so it became a, a, quite a sort of minority um, contemporary art form. I think that's changing a bit now. And you're right that also the, the neglect and starvation of resources. I mean, it, it, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, all young people would have had the opportunity to, to have free music lessons. Yeah. And 40 years ago, they would have got free musical instruments. All that's going now. Uh, and so I fear it's becoming a much more middle class thing. And that's bad for music, you know, because it, it will be, become even more sneerable, atable, if it appears to be, you know, an, an elite uh, middle class thing, sadly. Mm. And as somebody who's, le I, I'm learning late in life, I'm very frustrated by the number of people I know who learnt for five or 12 years when they were young, got to grade eight, clearly have fantastic skills and are much too terrified by the piano ever to go near it, either because they had such a petrifying experience with teachers when they were young, or they're just so depressed by the falling off in their capacity. And it seems to me the most amazing waste. What do you think can be done about the way people are taught music that will prevent them ending up thinking, I loathe this even though, even though I'm good at it? Well, it's, it's really nice being mediocre. Because <laughs> I, I, I feel, I mean, I'm still mediocre. You know, I had this sort of brief blip. It's a bit like running a marathon. Sometimes I get asked to go and speak about this piece and people say, would you play it afterwards? And I, I can't play it any longer. Um, <laughs> Alan does a very cool thing in the book. He uh, prints at various points his grade results, you know, from learning the piano as a kid, with sort of lots of criticism for lack of effort and well, not I being able to, to play scales. I, I had and... to make the, I had to prove. So <laughs> yeah. I, I did actually have the certificate to say how mediocre I was. I thought, <laughs> if anyone's ever sat a grade, 100 is pass and 150 is distinction. I, I think I got 101, you know, that was really bad. Um, but but if, you're, if you are mediocre, then, you know, I'm, I'm better than I was. I'm much better pianist than I was when I was 17. Mm. And that's nice. That's a nice trajectory in life. But I do know pianists, I mean, you know, people who think, who were grade eight when they were 16 and they can't bear the thought of going back and being less good. And I, I don't know, I mean, I've never tried teaching the piano, so I, I don't know how you do it. Because there is this business that, that unless you can play in all scales, and in all positions and all arpeggios, um, I think you're probably never going to be a great pianist. And if you want to get to grade eight, you have to do all the scales. So I, I don't know how, as a teacher, you do that without being a bastard. Um, uh, it, you know, if you're not teaching a, an incredibly talented child, how, how do you mm. do it? There's no real shortcut, I don't think. Um, how much did your motivation, obviously, there was the kind of the mindful aspect, but how much was about just the music? Yeah, I think it's a great piece of music. Mm. You, if you ever saw that film, The Pianist, it's the piece of music that the, the pianist who's been hiding in the attic plays to the Nazi guard when he's discovered because he has three minutes in which to save his life. And actually, it's a fake substitution in the book because he didn't play this piece of music. But I met the playwright Ronnie Harwood, who, who wrote the script, and he, he thought you needed a piece that was so powerful that would instantly make the point and would be believable. So that with the freezing fingers, he sits down and, and plays this to the Nazi guard. So it is a great piece of music, and all the four ballads are extraordinary. When I went to see Murray Pariah, he said, you, you know, there's a clear story here of 
exile and love and demonic possession and chaos and, and revolution. And it, it's all there in the music. So the music itself was, a, was an inspiration to, to, to do better. At the end of his book, just before Alan performs the piece in front of an audience, he writes, if one person leaves the room tonight intent on relearning an instrument, that wouldn't be a bad result. It's this intention and ability to inspire that I really loved about Alan in this book. Now knowing Alan's journey, the opportunity of being an amateur has a newfound appeal, a sense of creative freedom, no professional pressure, and a relishing in the fact that having room for improvement is at times part of the fun. In lots of other areas of your life, you know, doing your day job, it's hard to tell if you're getting better or getting worse. There isn't really a clear metric most of the time, whereas with the piano, what's really nice is there'll be a piece of music you were struggling to play a week ago, and now you're finding it a bit boring because you can play it. And that's nice, that sense of progress is a really wonderful thing. If you look at uh, the list of Nobel Prize winners in science, an overwhelming number of those scientists also play a musical instrument or learn to play a musical instrument. Far greater percentage than the population at large. And that, I think, says something really important about where creativity comes from. It does come at the intersect of different fields and it does come by cultivating other parts of your mind. When I first read Play It Again, I think I was slightly shamed into playing the piano because I thought, you know, if Alan can edit a national newspaper, have this sort of crazy 20-hour-a-day job, and can still eke out time to learn the piano, well, maybe I could too. There's a concept that it takes 10,000 hours to truly master whatever you're wanting to master, be that music or a sport. And I think about that a lot. 10,000 hours is a long time. And I'm probably not the only one who says that a lack of time is an excuse for not getting things done. We tend to think if we don't have an hour or two to commit, then we don't have time. But it's clear after listening to Alan that as little as 20 minutes a day can be significant. And you know, whether an amateur or a professional, finding that time to pursue our creative outlets is something we can all benefit from. Before he ended the talk, Alan had one last request. Do you think we could hear the last two minutes before? Yeah. So this is the bit where the piece just goes crazy. This is a bit that, that makes everyone live in dread. Yeah. It was a piece written while Chopin was in exile. He knew that he could never go back to Warsaw. This is a musical portrait of complete disintegration and destruction.
Creative Collisions was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. Your host was me, Rohan Silva, and it featured journalist and author Alan Rusbridger talking about his book, Play It Again, an amateur against the impossible. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you want to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.io.